If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a series showcasing the work of expert sports historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'm hosting the series, exploring how sport became a frontier in an era of superpower politics and intense international competition. There are more than 30 podcasts in our series now, which you can listen to on iTunes and Stitcher. They're curated by Laura Deal at the Wilson Centre in Washington. Please feel free to rate and review them. Follow us on Twitter at CWIHP and hashtag Cold War Sport. And thanks to our regular listeners for their positive feedback. China withdrew from the Olympics in a dispute over the recognition of Taiwan at the 1956 Games and didn't return to the fold until the 1980s. Susan Brownell is an anthropologist at the University of Missouri in St. Louis and she's an expert on Chinese sport. In fact, more than that, she was an athlete in China and represented Beijing. Susan, tell us something about your athletic career because it sheds an awful lot of perspective on what you're about to say, doesn't it? Well, I competed as a track and field athlete in the U.S. Olympic trials in 1980 and 1984. So I was one of those athletes whose dream was being shattered in 1980 when we knew already at the Olympic trials that we wouldn't be going to the Olympic Games. And it was actually the discussions among the athletes at that Games that later um, facilitated my interest in sports in China because I do remember the athletes in the U.S questioning why does our government, with ne- which never gave us one penny, have the right to prevent us from realizing our dreams by going to the Olympic Games? Because these were the days when we were all still required to be amateurs, technically speaking. You know, Any money that passed hands was, had to be under the table. And the U.S. government gave us no money. So a lot of the athletes really were wondering whether government-supported socialist sport was a better and more humane system. And that got me interested in socialist sport. So fast forward to 1984, I'm in graduate school studying anthropology. I've decided to specialize in China. I also participated in the U.S. Olympic trials in 1984. Wasn't quite good enough to make the team. Um, But then at that point, China is about to participate in its first ever Olympic game, summer Olympic games, because it had participated in the 1980 winter games in Lake Placid, and then followed the US in not going to Moscow. So Los Angeles 1984 was China's first summer games participation since the 1956 Melbourne games. Um, I was just up the road in Santa Barbara in graduate school and following everything, following all the news coverage. I drove down, I watched the track and field events, sobbing in the stadium because I wasn't there at the Olympics. But um, so that, that period is something I personally experienced and that's um, you know what I will be talking about, the um, China's participation in the Los Angeles Olympic Games. China withdrew from the Olympics after that dispute over the recognition of Taiwan at the Melbourne Games. Was that something of an overreaction? Wouldn't the New Republic have been better engaging with world sport in the form of the Olympics at that time? I think it's that's an interesting question. What if China had elected to engage? But you have to remember that it was only doing what was being done to it. So 
After the revolution in 1949, China becomes a country led by a communist party with a socialist economy. And it, it was excluded, you know, by the U.S. and its allies from all major world organizations. So it was not a member of the United Nations, whereas Taiwan, where the former regime had fled to, you know, to um, continue trying to operate under the name of the Republic of China, was represented in the United Nations. Um, it was still in the International Olympic Committee and a lot of um, international sport organizations claiming that that government still represented all of China. So this was after a bitter civil war, which they had lost. And you know the Chinese government was not happy that these renegades who had escaped to this island off the coast and were being supported there by the United States were out there claiming to represent all of China and symbolically doing it in the sports realm. So that, that was the logic behind China's insistence that it would not um, join international organizations, including sport organizations, unless Taiwan was kicked out. And since these organizations didn't agree to kick out Taiwan, they finally were left um, being themselves excluded. However, um, although this period is often remembered as a period of withdrawal from international engagement, um, the actual fact of the matter is that, that there, there was a huge amount of diplomatic effort going on constantly for all these years as China tried really hard to get the recognition that it wanted. So it always wanted to be a player on the international sports field. And by the time of the 1980s, that preliminary work had been achieved, had it? Yeah, because um, China had never never abandoned the hope, not only of joining the international sports world, but also of hosting an Olympic Games and becoming a major sports power. I mean, this was a dream that was first articulated in 1907. And so when in 2008, when China finally did host its first Olympic Games and had really announced its emergence as both a world sports power and a world economic power. So at that point, um, the Olympic Games were called China's realization of its 100-year dream. So when China rejoined the Olympic um, Games in 1984 and, you know, with the Eastern Bloc boycott, it placed second in the medal count behind the U.S. So it really announced in a big way that uh, here we are, we have arrived. And, you know, Outside, the outside world might have been a little surprised, but the thing is they had been leading up to this point for a very long time and there had been a major investment in sports going back to the 70s. So, it, you know, the, the infrastructure was there, the training, the, the athletes were ready to go when they finally got that chance. The 20th century was a turbulent century for China, without doubt. In terms of Cold War analysis, China isn't really a player on the sporting field because of that withdrawal, is, or is it? Well, that is the interesting point. And now in this era, we look back, we're examining the question of boycotts. Does anybody win a boycott? Does exclusion ever pay off for anybody? And looking back, one might wonder if China had uh, compromised on its principles with respect to Taiwan and had, you know, done whatever it took to be a player in international sports. Um, would there, would it have just been more present in the, you know, sort of consciousness of the Western developed world all through that time? And would that have been a good thing? You, you can look back and you can 
ask that question. Uh, that's not how it played out at the time. So I think the result was that it, China was simply not sort of on the radar screen, especially the popular audience, the public audience. They just didn't have, you know, venues where they saw China in action and saw China represented as a country. So I think one of the things that happened with the Los Angeles Olympics was that suddenly it was there in a really big way. And it was like a submarine that had been, you know, under the ocean and suddenly bursts through the surface and it's out there in broad daylight. I think it got people's attention. And I would like to argue that, that by getting people's attention in that way, it made, it, it um, disseminated a public realization that the Cold War in the sense of a world divided into a communist East and a quote unquote free West, that binary was, was gone and it had been gone for a very long time and China didn't fit into that binary. And so I think it facilitated a popular recognition that, you know, that old image of a divided world, it just wasn't accurate anymore and it had not been for a very long time. With your insights as an athlete and also your expertise on uh, China, what kind of impact do you think a withdrawal from the Olympics had on the society, the, the young people of China, who might have been world-beating athletes in, in that time between the late 1950s and the 1980s? China's withdrawal from sports um, preceded its withdrawal from everything. You know, so this... Withdrawal in 56 was then followed by its first anti-rightist campaign when um, the first sort of crackdown on free speech. And then that led forward finally to the Cultural Revolution in 1966, which involved a complete withdrawal from everything, a turning inward and a massive disaster for the entire country. My personal assessment of that is that I, I feel that the U.S., um, and the developed world have some responsibility in the disaster of the Cultural Revolution because I feel that a, a, a choice to isolate a country um, is destructive. And in China's case, it helped to facilitate what happened later. Like if there had been more systematic engagement, if there had not been these trade embargoes, if there had been more cultural exchange, you know, maybe the Cultural Revolution never would have happened. So, I mean, just my understanding of that whole sequence of human history makes me a really strong proponent of engagement and not isolation. So that is almost a, a secondary outcome of the Cold War, isn't it? The ostracization, the ostracism of, of China as an international player. Right. And I think they experienced it as ostracization. Um, and I think there was, you know, anger about it. If you look back at that um, effort to be readmitted into the International Olympic Committee, you can see it all hinged on one word. They were obsessed with one word, which was recognition. You know, they just wanted to be recognized for what they were, which is a government that has jurisdiction of a population of nearly a billion people, you know, and they couldn't even get that. So, you know, it's in, not until 1971, finally, that China is readmitted into the United Nations. But it, unfortunately, it took quite a while longer, 1979, until it was um, admitted into the um, uh, International Olympic Committee. We have the benefit of hindsight now. Why didn't that recognition come? 
Well, uh, I mean, at least it was when it, it was admitted into the UN in 1971, and that was um, partly due to the you know improvement in Sino-U.S. relations under ping pong diplomacy, President Nixon. Um, but what happened after that was Nixon got impeached, and the U.S. political situation um, turned, and I think our government got a little bit distracted. So it was not until 79 that the U.S. diplomatically recognized China. So that's, it's probably not a coincidence that that was the same year that finally the International Olympic Committee um, accepted China in back as a member under its own conditions. So the conditions were that Taiwan had to be represented as a province of China. And that's why Taiwan, in all Olympic settings, must be named the Chinese Taipei Olympic Committee. You know, it's not allowed to use uh, the name by which it calls itself, which is the Republic of China. But that in itself is still 30 years since the revolution. That's seven Olympiads. Chinese people have very long memories. <laughs> and, and it's very interesting to me um, how important these words are. I would call them word games, but they would not trivialize them by saying they're games. So, you know, the name of the country, the, the flag that can be used, the anthem, these are all symbols that are really, really important to Chinese people. I mean, I translated the biography of China's member in the International Olympic Committee, He Zhenliang, um, who was China's sort of senior sports diplomat through much of this period, and then he was co-opted into the IOC in 1981. And that chapter on Taiwan that I translated from Chinese into English, I thought I had already done a great job. But when they got my English and, you know, edited it according to the censorship um, policies, practices common in China. It took me eight more hours to input the changes <laughs> that were made to what I thought was already a pretty good chapter because the sensitivity about the words used to describe the relationship with Taiwan is just mind-boggling. I mean, I can give you an example. Um, in English, you are not allowed to use the word Taiwanese because I was told it implies that Taiwan is a nation. I tried to argue that this doesn't make any sense because Shanghainese is a word for people that live in a city. It doesn't mean you're a nation or Genoese or whatever, but they, they didn't care. It's how they interpret, you know, the use of the English language and the sort of customary practices, the formula that they have to live by. Non-negotiable. Completely non-negotiable, yeah. Let's use your insight again as an athlete to say, what happened in those years to Chinese sport? Did a vacuum develop in which training methods lagged behind? Uh, was there dust on the training manuals? Or, or where did they look for their inspiration when they returned to the international fold? Well, from the revolution on, the Soviet Union was China's big brother, and so the main expertise was coming from the Soviet Union, a little bit from East Germany. They were always sending experts in to China, and this actually continued, probably continues to the present. When I was there in 1985, there were um, always a number of Soviet experts working with um, athletes in China, but at that time increasingly more from the U.S. and West Germany than you know the Eastern Bloc. So they, they were always sort of making some effort to um, get the latest sports techniques and um, some investment in the sports system. Something really 
interesting happened during the Cultural Revolution because there was this thing called the sent down youth movement. So urban, well-educated youth were sent down to live with the peasants. They were resettled into the countryside in massive numbers. And educated parents didn't want their children to necessarily leave them and spend the rest of their lives as peasants in the countryside. And sports teams offered an escape. So if a child was pretty good at sports and they could get accepted onto a sports team, they would be able to escape this policy and have a better life. So it was actually an anomaly in the last several decades um, because generally speaking, parents really respect education and the thing they hope is that their child will be able to test into a top university. So there is generally speaking a problem that well-educated parents um, don't want their children to join the sports boarding schools, which are the core of the state-supported system. That, that period was actually an anomaly. So it did have the advantage of um, bringing new kinds of talent into the system, who later on became good coaches and administrators. You're an American and you're studying at uh, Beijing University and uh, competing. How do you think the two systems sports-wise compared? I thought it was very interesting, especially being in Beijing, which is where the um, state sports ministry is located. And um, my coaches were all trained at the Beijing Sport University, which is the leading um, sport university in China. So I thought my coaches were actually better trained than my American coaches were because of that centralized system and the physical education institute system, which we don't have in the U.S. So, you know, coaches in the U.S., who knows where they got their training? Many of them were probably athletes themselves. And, and there's not really a centralized system for disseminating the latest, uh, you know, uh, approaches and training it you know you just have to be networked and sort of pick it up as it comes out so um, you know I was surprised at how well trained my coaches were and adaptable and very interested in my own training techniques and asked me about them and then the next thing I knew they were using them and training their own athletes um, so yeah the coaches pretty high quality, but the facilities were terrible, you know, like I had never run on a cinder track before. And I mean, I had to use these old leather spikes that look like something out of chariots of fire, you know, leather shoes with big long spikes. I had to learn how to hammer my starting blocks into the cinder. I, I had just never done things like that before. And it, it was scary. It was a little dangerous sometimes. I mean, slippery surfaces and yeah. So the facilities were definitely backwards. <laughs> the last time anybody told me a story about hammering <laughs> was the people talking about the 1948 Olympics. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder when the last Olympics were held on a cinder track. Not probably rather probably long ago. Then. Yeah. Given China's alienation, isolation, call it what you like, during the Cold War, has there been a gap to make up, or is China now competing on a, a level playing field in the uh, the post Beijing Olympics period? I think my my lesson from all of this, and looking back at the history of China through the lens of sport throughout the Cold War and up to the present is to understand how much China has always wanted to be a player in the games that are already being played. So, you know, it, it just wanted to take its place among the powerful Western nations and be like them. Um, so this is not the 
uh, image you will get of China in the Western media where, you know, it's um, the rise of China is conceived as a threat to our way of life. And it's um, thought that maybe China is going to be soon a military threat, you know, in that part of the world. And um, I, I think that is just not the way China has been over the past few decades. I think they, they just wanted to be playing with the other boys on the playing field and not, you know, necessarily beating them all up, but just, you know, being recognized, being respected. Now, you know, maybe that could change once they've achieved that status, because I think they're just about there now. Maybe they could become more ambitious after that. But for the moment, I just simply don't perceive China as being the threat that um, it's often portrayed to be in the media. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the 